AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Kevo. And I'm Nico, and this is Husbands Talking More or Less. HTML, Alien Legacy, and man, I am doing anything to keep putting words in front of starting the episode for real. I get that. Alien Cubed, Alien 3, Alien 3 Blind Mice, this one was tough. Alien, at least three different movies that got compiled into one movie. Actually, yeah, in that regard, the little cubed symbol promoting the film makes a lot of sense because that does sort of represent how infinitely many different drafts and iterations of this story there were before the final product that got sort of like jammed together to make a movie that honestly for as bad as we are bad mouthing it I still enjoyed better than either Predator you know that's a really great point that I guess I hadn't considered and I really appreciate you bringing that to light now I think the most important thing to discuss when we're talking about Alien 3 and why I am let's go with aggressively shitty about it has to do with my perceived expectations of the film and what I ultimately got. When I initially got into the Alien franchise, I sort of just like followed DVD special feature to DVD special feature in this intense couple of days, kind of like it was just like a big snowball. Yeah, I've been there. And I remember that as I was looking into things, one of the things I found was that an early trailer for the film included that this time it was gonna be about Earth. And I feel like that's definitely not the movie I got. But at certain points, it definitely was going to be. I also understand that at any given time, Fox was looking desperately to screw Sigourney Weaver out of as much money as they could over and over. Yes. So I get that there was times they tried to take my precious Ripley out of this movie. And that has resulted in a number of alternate drafts, which we will be covering later in this podcast. But I guess there's nowhere to start else but here on Kevo 5. Just alien cubed BTS, just get it over with. Well, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Composer for this film, Elliot Goldenthal, is the partner of Julie Taymor, both romantically and professionally. Yeah. Oh shit! Now I need Alien the Musical. Actually, that would be kind of that would be kind of fun because she's Spider-Man. Go turn off the light, right? Yeah, she yeah. is. And she's Lion King, and I think she's producers. I mean, she's fucking Julie Taymor. Yeah, his first major professional work that came out before for Alien Cubed was Pet Cemetery in 1989 by director Mary Lambert. And then shortly after Alien Cubed was Interview with the Vampire in 1994, which was nominated for an Academy Award, Golden Globe, and Saturn Award. That's, you know, and what's funny is like the trajectory on it makes kind of like sense. Shitty horror movie, but from a great dude. Shitty sci-fi movie, but from a great franchise. Shitty film adaptation of a great novel series. I see this guy's trajectory 
trajectory. And then following that trajectory comes Batman Forever in 95 and Batman and Robin in 1997. So yeah, that kind of tracks along with everything that you're saying. It's attempt at taking over and helming a much better franchise from other people. Not a ton of other enormous credits that I've written down from this composer other than, I guess, more recently work that he's probably done with his wife. He did say, though, notably that the score was recorded during the 1992 LA riots, which he claimed contributed to the score's disturbing nature. I imagine that it would. The director of this film is someone who is very noteworthy, so I focused more on his career early on and before this film. David Fincher is a pretty noteworthy director by now. Early in life, though, he was inspired by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969 and began making movies at the age of eight. I learned a lot of really interesting things about early David Fincher, though. Like, early on in his career, he worked as an assistant cameraman and matte photographer for ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, on Return of the Jedi in 83, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 84, and Never Ending Story, also in 84. He left ILM in 1984 and directed a commercial for the American Cancer Society that depicted a fetus smoking a cigarette. Yeah, your face is kind of what I felt about that, too. I don't remember this in pop culture. David Fincher says don't let babies chain smoke their moms to death. I know I was negative one, but I don't remember hearing about this, but it was apparently noteworthy enough to gain him attention and led to him directing the 1985 Rick Springfield documentary, The Beat of the Live Drum. Every year, thousands of mothers are burned to death by babies that fall asleep smoking in them. Don't be one of those mothers. Talk to your fetuses about smoking inside of you. And this is what caught Rick Springfield's attention. Like, I I guess. I don't know. I imagine that is where the name of his production company that he co-founded came from, though. Propaganda Films. There are a lot of really interesting things that came out of Propaganda Films that I hadn't realized, like the 2002 film adaptation, 1999's Being John Malkovich, 1997's American Werewolf in Paris, the Nickelodeon TV show Salute Your Shorts, the ABC television show Twin Peaks, and the Fox television program Beverly Hills 90210. All of these things came from propaganda films. Huh. I desperately need the cast of 90210 to go to a summer camp that's like super duper magical and has creepy fucking owls, and I need it to be a Lynch Fincher, or as I'm gonna call it, ooh, no, 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 no. next factoid, next factoid. (laughs) From there, he mostly directed a bunch of commercials for products like Levi's, Converse, Nike, Pepsi, Revlon, Sony, Coke, and Chanel, and directed 52 music videos in under a decade. To give you some perspective, he's only directed a total of... 58 in his lifetime. 52 were between 1984 and 1992. He like really just like Duran Duran them all in there, didn't he? Yeah, apparently. And it was such hits as We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off by Jermaine Stewart, Roll With It by Steve Winwood, Bombaleo by Gypsy Kings, Straight Up by Paula Abdul, Express Yourself by Madonna, The End of Innocence by Don Henley, Janie's Got a Gun by Aerosmith, and 
Vogue, also by Madonna. The fact that you didn't highlight Englishman in New York by Sting, because now I desperately need, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien, I'm a xenomorph in this prison. I need some, like, because the lyrics are literally, I'm an alien, and I need it. That's why I wrote that one down and had you looking at the list, because I was like, I know some of these are probably something, but I'm going to let Nico decide if he wants to say them out loud. I only wrote down Eddie Money's Endless Nights because he died this week, so like, RIP Eddie Money. After this, he directed the music videos for Bad Girl by Madonna in 1993, and In This Century, only by Nine Inch Nails in 2005, and Suit and Tie by Justin Timberlake and Jay-Z in 2013. A little context on the era of Madonna he directed. We might think of Madonna now as cotton candy jukebox acid, but at the time, there was a time at least, that Madonna was a revolutionary artist breaking ground with her every move. The music videos are from the era of her career, specifically Like a Prayer, The Immaculate Collection, I'm Breathless, Erotica. This era of music videos, roughly 1988 to 1993, were very daring and really bold. After that, she kind of got into a little bit more of an artistic phase with Bedtime Stories and the bid for Evita with music videos like you'll see from Something to Remember. But at this point in her career, Madonna was making really artistic mini-movies to get a little bit more credibility as an actress. Bad Girl is a very dense story song, almost in the tradition of a share story song. And the music video for it is particularly powerful, really well directed. Sixth Avenue Heartaches music video, I don't think has aged particularly well. And I feel the only notable element of Justin Timberlake and Jay-Z's suit and tie is that it was a catchy Justin Timberlake song that wasn't about the producer who put it together. So for my money, I do feel like David Fincher and his connection to music videos has lapsed rather considerably. And yet it seems that that was the work that drew Fox's attention. It was Fox who approached David Fincher to direct Alien Cubed, but only after they had gone through a lot, a lot of directors and turmoil on the long road to making the film already. I am going to specifically highlight the people that are credited with the script and story first before we get into the deeper BTS of what exactly happened. First and foremost are the Brandywine boys who helped make this whole project possible, David Geiler and Walter Hill. One of the things I love the most about hearing that those two were at least a part of this film is whether or not I like the outcome. There's at least a connection to the people who initially conceived it. So if somebody made this ship blow sky high at least it was like the guys who built it right and their effect and influence on the script of this film was kind of touch and go but they are the ones who conceived the initial storyline that is in absolutely no way what the story ended up being but they did take the final pass on the script so like that's something at least the number of versions of this script is so baffling it really is walter hill worked a lot with nick nolte in his career. That's something that I wrote down at the top there. He wrote The Warriors from 1979. He co-wrote it and directed it. Yeah, that The Warriors. In 1982 he co-wrote and directed 48 Hours, which was, you know, I guess that's why I wrote that note down. Starring Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, which was Golden Globe nominated and Joel Silver's first film as a producer that eventually spawned a sequel in 1990. Joel Silver, who I no longer confuse with Joel Schumacher. 
No, good. But as a lesson in not getting too cocky, the 1986 film that he co-wrote and directed, Blue City, starring Judd Nelson and Ali Sheedy, was nominated for a Golden Raspberry for Worst Picture. We have a lot of Razzie nominees. I think that has to do with the way that sci-fi, fantasy, and action are generally mistreated by critics' associations, especially during this era, despite the fact that the Avengers films have gone on to outgross the Catholic Church. It seems like they're never going to get a legitimate nomination in a major category blue city was a drama though <laughs> sorry about it guy uh, he also co-wrote and directed the 1988 film red heat starring arnold schwarzenegger and jim belushi which was the first american film given permission to shoot in moscow's red square though most of the scenes set in the soviet union were actually shot in hungary also the score was by james horn so like these things are just always doing that. he won an emmy in 2004 for directing an episode of deadwood and more recently was the writer and director of the controversial michelle rodriguez film the assignment in 2016 it is the wildly trans frictional film starring sigourney weaver as a mad plastic surgeon who forces gender reassignment surgery onto a man turning him into michelle rodriguez no sigourney what have you done michelle rodriguez was like super defensive and so was walter hill frankly he says that he wouldn't make a movie that hurt trans people some of them have had a tough time of it all of them buddy and the last thing i want to do is make anyone's road harder but look i understand the concern is it lurid yes is it lowbrow well maybe is it offensive no i'm just trying to honor the b movies that we grew up with honoring something that hurts somebody isn't a good move as for david guyler he has a lot fewer credits and even fewer notable ones really he wrote an episode each of the man and the girl from uncle in 1967 which the themes for that were composed by jerry goldsmith so that's why i wrote that down magic also because there really are just so very few credits he co-wrote the money pit in 1986 that tom hanks movie apart from that his biggest credit on his filmography is one that he even shares with walter hill which was co-executive producing tales from the crypt along with joel silver richard donner and robert zemeckis interesting i never would have thought those people came together to make tales from the crypt me neither but i kind of love it it makes it a lot more special in that way and i think it's pretty cool that two people whose most major work frankly is the alien franchise were even included in that so they have their mark on something else that isn't just Alien. That's nice for them. Also taking a pass on the script was scriptwriter Larry Ferguson, who wrote Highlander in 1988. The director of Predator 2, Stephen Hopkins, was second unit director on that. I think I might have said something about that on the Predator 2 episode even. So I just felt like writing that one down. He wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2 in 1987, which had an uncredited script pass by David Geiler. He also wrote The Hunt for Red October in 1990 by Predator 1's director john mctiernan and i thought that was pretty interesting and then i saw that he wrote the script for rollerball in 2002 as in wiretapping scandal rollerball fascinating interesting stuff right there apparently he also appeared in last action hero in 1993 as himself i don't know but now i want to watch to find out what that could mean yeah that's fascinating that's hey hollywood insiders here's a joke for just you the last person to get official credit on the script or story of the film is director vincent ward who got a story credit based on his contributions to the ever-changing script he's done a ton of stuff that i haven't really heard of the only thing that i saw that i recognized and had anything that seemed 
seemed like it was noteworthy was that he directed What Dreams May Come in 1998. I remember that was like a big deal back in the day. And that was such a big deal because that was like the Robin Williams is now a dramatic actor renaissance. And it was like just everything Robin Williams did for a minute was fucking Patch Adams, even when it sucked as much as Patch Adams. Mm, and it was Cuba Gooding Jr. trying to like have more dramatic roles as well. So yeah, plus Pretty, that was back when CGI was like still breathtaking. Toy Story was beautiful back in 1996, wasn't it? Ow. Yeah, kind of like the little crawly alien in this movie. So initially, the Brandywine boys were less than enthused to continue the Alien franchise. They were a little bit afraid of fatigue, but they opted to explore the duplicity of the Weyland-Yutani Corp and their desire for the biological weapon. Settling on a two-part story, the treatment for the third film had them facing off with a militarily aggressive culture of humans whose rigid socialist ideology had caused them to separate from Earth society with very strong Cold War analogies. Hicks would have been promoted to protagonist with Ripley merely cameoing in this film, only to return in the fourth, an epic battle with alien warriors mass-produced by expatriated Earthlings. Sigourney Weaver was super into having her reduced war because she was not happy with Fox at the time, which we have already alluded to a few times, and she was described by some as seeming quote, doggedly unwilling to participate, end quote. And that's one of the things that I remember from my childhood. I've joked and talked about growing up in the con circuit and fandom and one of the things that you heard a lot was oh yeah Sigourney Weaver was a real bitch about Alien 3 that's why it sucked so much but we've come to find out so many more things played a factor in that she was horribly mistreated by the production company she really was and she frankly wasn't sure how she felt about Ripley continuing with the franchise either at a certain point how much can you do to one character and what you've clearly established is a pretty expansive world the first writer to be brought on to the project was scriptwriter William Gibson, who wrote a script that he mockingly summed up himself as Space Commies Hijack Alien Eggs, Big Problem in Mall World. He, from what I understand, mostly followed the Brandywine concept that I outlined before in a highly action-oriented script that focused mostly on Hicks. He also evolved the alien conversion process. Instead of just a small chestburster, the alien would convert the bones and innards into a xenomorph that would burst through the host's full skin, like a full-sized warrior, as well as introducing the idea of the alien virus becoming airborne. I like alien virus becoming airborne, but I really don't think I like Oh, and also some of us turn into giant xenomorphs. That's it. No, it just feels like out of nowhere. It feels like he was trying to do a little too much, a little too suddenly. Oh, is that how you feel about the William Gibson version, eh? Then let me tell you a little bit about Eric Red, who described his own draft as utter crap in the end. It was set mostly in a small town USA city inside a type of biodome in space and culminated in an all out battle with townsfolk facing hordes of alien warriors. It was the first screenplay to introduce a genetically mixed alien human. It reuses the alien virus concept from the Gibson draft, this time giving rise to alien mosquitoes, cattle, dogs, and chickens, and even gaining the ability to infect matter and technology, culminating in the space station itself being transformed into a giant alien-like creature. No, I like that one more. Ah, it's bonkers bat shit, but I like it more. Also, it's weird the number of pieces of that that would ultimately show up throughout the franchise. Agreed, but then-director Rennie Harlan was 
was not as happy as you were with that and walked out on the project to direct Die Hard 2. Another Die Hard? Yeah, another Die Hard. This also led to the Brandywine boys firing him and abandoning plans to develop both sequels simultaneously. I don't necessarily like that story so much as, alright, that's somehow less annoying to me. I don't know why. I guess because I just don't like the idea of like angry colonized earthers. That's just not my shit. And it's weird, but it's not, you know, prison rape weird. The next scriptwriter to take over after that was David Toy. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He wrote The Fugitive in 1993, Waterworld in 1995, G.I. Jane in 97, and the Riddick films in 2000, 2004, and 2013. I didn't kill my wife! I don't care! His draft is the one, unfortunately, that introduced the concept of a prison planet, but here it was being used for illegal experiments on prisoners. He was also the first to introduce many later used alien concepts, such as scientific testing, cloning, and victims, here multiple, being sucked through a hole in a hull breach, like from Alien Resurrection. I'm really uncomfortable with Tuskegee morphs. It was around this point in production of the film that Ripley started being written back into the spotlight. Even so, the new director, Vincent Ward, was not interested in Toy's draft and scrapped it for his own vision, which, well, the word arresting was used for this concept by both Empire Magazine and Sigourney Weaver, where Ripley's escape pod crash-landed on a monastery-like satellite, which had an inner wooden planet approximately one mile wide with various settings ranging from wheat fields to a dungeon where Ripley is thrown when the monk inhabitants ignore her advice about the beast that came with her. At first believing the star in the east, or Ripley's pod, to be a good omen, the Luddite-like monks soon come to believe it is a sort of religious trial for their sins, and that the alien is the devil. Some wonder if their trial is partially caused by sexual temptation, with Ripley being the only woman among their community for ten years. This explains where a lot of the weirder stuff in Alien 3 came from after the Gibson and Toy drafts, to be honest. But at a certain point, I'm just like, did you film that stuff and were stuck with it? Or were you like, no, let's keep this draft. Like, it was a piece of paper, throw it the fuck out, bro! I'm not 100% sure how I feel about Wooden Planet in space. I'm kind of pretty glad that they didn't try doing it then, because Brandywine and Fox were obviously hesitant about it, bringing up the logical problems of creating and maintaining a wooden planet in space. Um, I don't know if I would agree with Fox exec John Landau, who referred to it as artsy-fartsy, compared to the, quote, big commercial films of Ridley Scott and James Cameron. But I could kind of see where he's coming from. There's one quote that I saw where they were talking about, like, this wooden book lift, and the person talking about it was like, oh, imagine the action sequences that you could have done on that. And I'm like, a wooden monastery book lift with an alien jumping up and down on it? I'm not sure that's, like, as cool as you think it sounds. I mean, I think it actually sounds, like, really visually beautiful, but I really don't think it's a great dynamic that's like, we're gonna have a really cool action sequence in a treehouse. It's like, let's add fire to Home Alone. It just doesn't work. It's not something I think they would have been capable of at the time. Interestingly enough, that's a pretty good comparison. Let's add fire to Home Alone. Now you could do that with computers. At the time, you might have burned... Macaulay Culkin's eyebrows off, and that's not something you want to do. No, you save that for Michael Jackson and Pepsi commercials. So despite managing to dissuade the Brandywine producers from changing the planet to an ore refinery and the monks to prisoners, Fox's list of demands were met with Ward's refusal, and he was fired. The basic structure of his story still shows, though, on the final film. And, you know, you can see it. Feeling creatively drained from the whole process, Hill and Guiler called in script doctor Larry Ferguson, and his work was also not well received 
received, particularly by Sigourney Weaver, who felt Ferguson wrote Ripley like a pissed-off gym teacher. Which I can see. I don't think the shaved head helped. I'm getting sadder the more we're talking about this, and I was already pretty sad. I have positive things to say about the direction, but this explains all of my issues with the story. And it was at this point that Hill and Geiler took back creative control of the screenplay themselves. They melded aspects of the Ward Fursano script with the toy prison planet draft, and there you go. Sigourney Weaver actually had a clause written into her contract stating that the final draft should be by them, believing that they were the only writers besides James Cameron to write the character effectively. Well, alright. I've already been a part of an amazing dissection of this film over on Third Time's a Charm with host Mike and guest host Chris Podcasts, where we took a look at some of the themes in the film, like the overt religion, misogyny, and attempts at feminism. But here, we're looking at the film in terms of a greater context. Now, the first thing I need to say is watching the director's cut, well, I guess it's the producer's cut of this film, I was pleasantly blown away by how much I finally appreciated what the visuals were going for in this movie. I definitely agree. It feels like an alien movie still. It feels continuous with the two films that came before it. Even if I, you know, have some very strong opinions about the plot that was ultimately chosen and the fates of characters from previous films, it still feels like it's part of the same franchise, and that's very important to take note of. I do, however, have a problem right off the bat with the death of all of the survivors from the previous film, save for Ripley. That's what I'm saying. From there, we move quickly into a film that I really feel like doesn't introduce many characters to care about. Ultimately, I care for one character in the entire film introduced here, and that is Dylan. I feel things for a few of the different characters. I feel for 85 for a little while, and Charles Dance's character from time to time I enjoy, but he is just such an obvious plot device that it becomes annoying at different times. The opening crawl of scenery is really beautiful, and I appreciate what they're trying to do. Even if Fincher didn't have as much control over the script as he would have liked here, something he does do is masterfully creates the atmosphere of this prison planet. There is a feel of cultishness, there is the uncomfortability of a sweatshop layered with the pain of confinement. It actually is a really visually well-layered film. And in that regard, I think it's a really beautiful film using a really horrendous script. The general plot of the film is that Ripley crash lands on this prison planet and has somehow brought the alien with her. The prisoners are tricked, convinced, totally opt to kind of protect the alien at some points. Sometimes they're against it. But at the end of the day, it's all Waylon Yutani and a complicated series of lies once again trying to get their hands on the alien. It feels no different than the plan in Alien, which feels no different than the plan in Aliens. The only difference I would say between Alien and Alien 3 in terms of cast dynamic, apart from, you know, the, the, the abysmal disproportionate ratio of gender and character motivations, is that there's more of the cast left earlier on that are aware that Wayland yutani want the alien at all costs, and so we are able to see what it looks like when a bigger team is 
working together. I feel like Aliens, you know, being a military operation and having Carter there with them for most of the movie, like, it's very different. Here, it's a bunch of isolated people outside, apart from the rest of society, who are being attacked by this alien creature, and there's absolutely no hope of rescue. Even if people reach them for rescue, they are more likely to kill the survivors and bring in the thing that is attacking them alive. And that harkens much more back to the first film than anything else. I really appreciate that contrast because other than a couple of unique trope or convention elements, like the aforementioned attempted rape scene of Ripley, which I just, other than I really thought Dylan showed himself to be a good guy in that sequence, I can't even figure out what anybody would have found was the redeeming element of that sequence that it had to make it into the film. You could in some perverse backwater fucked up way think that that scene is relevant because it helps support one of the male leads but that scene offers nothing else by way of story and honestly that's kind of the full plot of this movie it's stop the aliens from getting off the planet by properly blowing up every way of getting off the planet and maybe killing ourselves that's it that's the plot of the movie the plot of this entire film is the last five minutes of alien i enjoyed the ways though in which this film's plot were so severe really affected by random chance I guess is the way I would put it. You know, there's the sequence where they are trying to capture and blow up the xenomorph and there's that giant explosion in the gas tunnel because one of the prisoners is attacked by the aliens and he drops his torch. Or the fact that Gallic releases the alien due to his insanity and people underestimate what he is able to do because he seems innocent and he in his insanity thinks that the beast is something that it's not and all he ends up doing is getting himself killed and releasing it and starting all this crap up again it's an annoyance and a frustration but that is what happens sometimes in life and i'm glad you brought up the alien itself because depending on what version of this film you saw you might have seen a cow alien or you might have seen a dog alien because this film had so much revision to it that down to during producing the film what the alien was going to have um made a baby in i don't know how i want to phrase that it was changed and it's just wild gestated in the only other things i think i really have to say about the meandering middle that is this middling film are you know there are certain things that just always stick in my craw a little bit the moment when one of the prisoners refers to ripley as shirley temple i just feel like this is like 2179 or something by now I don't think that that is super current. And what the fuck kind of pansy-ass prisoner is that? Yeah, woman, you want animal crackers in that soup? Monkeys and rabbits, loop-de-loop. Yeah, like, what super criminal is making Shirley Temple references? I also think it's really interesting when Ripley encounters a xenomorph for the first time in this film at about an hour and eight minutes. The shot of the xenomorph coming up in her face is, like, one of the most iconic shots of Ripley with a xenomorph. And I think it's really interesting that a film that is generally not considered one of the best by the biggest alien fans has such an iconic 
iconic shot for the franchise that is so frequently used in merchandising and advertising and so on and so forth. And I think that goes to the heart of what I was saying earlier, that it's just a really beautifully directed but incompetent film. Yeah, like one of the things I noted as we were watching was during the scene where Hicks and Newt's bodies are laid to rest and the alien is born out of the babe the blue ox it's a really cool moment of symbolism slash foreshadowing slash symmetry in that it reflects the way that ripley ultimately sacrifices herself to the same molten pit to prevent whaley mutani from getting the specimen in the non-director's cut the chest burster actually starts to come out of ripley's chest as she's falling whereas in the version that we watched it does not but if you take into account that there is a version where it does the symmetry between that and the scene where the ox baby is born is a really interesting parallel and i agree that the symbolism is there but i don't know that it even needs it i think in a lot of ways the chest burster coming out of her chest is very explaining the joke and i don't need this explained to me okay i got that You know, I'm so glad we watched Alien 3 together because I feel like this is the first time that I genuinely almost liked it. Yeah, there are certainly redeeming qualities to the film for sure. The last time I watched it, like I mentioned, I watched the original theatrical cut for Third Time's a Charm, but there's something about the producer cut, the prison planet cut, the awkward, uncomfortable murder cut that really feels a bit more like an Alien movie. And now that we know all of the complications that went into making this film as opposed to the first two, how disjoint and confused it is really makes a lot more sense and I'm very much looking forward to the much deeper dive that we plan to take into what did and did not get made for Alien 3. Something you said that I thought was just absolutely tremendous was you'd pointed out that it feels so much like Alien, Aliens, and Alien Cubed are one trilogy with Resurrection, Prometheus, and Covenant as another trilogy and down to their names, Alien, singular, Aliens, plural, Alien Cubed, three of them. Resurrection, a story of sort of like mankind discovering mythology and Jesus and Prometheus and mankind discovering fire and it's a story of creationism again. And then Covenant, which is a beginning of a promise, it really does feel like two separate trilogies. The word Covenant also really evokes thoughts of the Ark of the Covenant because it's something that you shouldn't look at. So, wow, oh man, I love everything we're talking about. And until we come back to discuss this new trilogy of alien films, Kevo, where on the internet can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, which is on Facebook now at Real Nico Kevo Action. Yes, I did the thing and I changed the name. That is also the at where you can find our joint Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr account. You you can also find my super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero work that I do with Nico, Tori Sheehan, and Taryn and Glima over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network, whether it's making themes for shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, or working on Now and Again with my childhood best friend, Chris Podcast, where we talk about the music that helped make us through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music series. I love making shows for this network. I stay in the most busy between HTML, this show here, 
And X is for podcast. Kevo, Jonah, who is our boyfriend, and Dylan and Kyle, two of our best friends, and I all do a deep dive into what makes the X-Men comic book franchise so special. We've covered The Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman. We've covered the 70s mutant regenesis, 80s mutant mania, and we're all over that Marvel Universe now. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and until we see you guys again, we'll see ya. Cubed space. Razor space rex. No. Nope. No. Nope.